Shit You Love, the podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album, where I get to crap on about anything I like. Hello again. Welcome to episode seven of Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. It's the podcast where I get to talk about only the shit I love. And this week, in the cartoon series, Episode 7, The Plot Thins, The Shit I Love is the amazing vocal performance of singer, songwriter, comedian, actor and cabaret artist Geraldine Quinn. The plot may well be threadbare in this instalment of my already nearly see-through story, but there's nothing underwhelming about Geraldine's vocal performance as she sails above the final section of the song. It's a particularly amazing effort, given my less-than-helpful brief, which was, Sing, but not any words and don't make it gospel. To which Geraldine replied, It's a gospel song. So, there's Geraldine, trying not to sound gospel, singing a wordless gospel part over a gospel song. And a brilliant job she does of it, too. Geraldine is very talented and a nice person to boot, but there's another aspect of special significance about Geraldine. She grew up in the same part of town as me. Springvale, Sandown Park, Noble Park, Dandenong, they're all part of the Geraldine DNA. She once told me that she used to walk to school past Foster's Night Spot in Dandenong, the insalubrious venue which inspired a song called Foster's Car Park Boogie by a former band of mine. Like me, she never actually went into Foster's, but you didn't have to go there. Foster's blood-curdling reputation loomed over the venue like a giant lurid billboard. Geraldine is younger than me, who isn't, so she wasn't kicking around the slag heaps of the 3174 precinct at the same time as me. But if I were down on my luck and had to resort to running bus tours of where my former band grew up, I'd have Geraldine as my tour guide. One of the most solemnly observed stops would be a small, unprepossessing brick hall known as the Noble Park Community Centre, which in 1976 was home to the Noble Park Youth Club. It was here that my rock and roll dream ended. My rock and roll dream had at that point been going for about four weeks, and it had started at a similarly unremarkable building not far away, the Springvale High School Hall. That was the venue for my very first gig, the debut performance of Kestrel Hawk. In our last episode, I'd mentioned the uninspiringly named Kestrel Hawk, our first proper real live teenage band. We'd been banging away for months every Saturday afternoon in the garage of Sean's place in St John's Avenue, stumbling our way through murky versions of other people's songs, chosen with pin the tail on the donkey randomness. Yes, there was your Led Zepp and your Deep Purple, predictably, but there was also a whole section of West Coast hippie folk rock, a la your Neil Youngs and your CSN and Ys, none of which I liked at the time because I thought it was wimpy. We chose those sensitive ballads to murder because our bass player Greg went to an alternative school somewhere in the Dandenongs called Tenedon, the great freedoms of which we never heard the last of. Our newly superior friend Greg wore bare feet, smoked in class and called his teachers by their first name. 
and he'd morphed from a Bowie fan into a sensitive folk singer who wrote his own songs in the deeply dramatic, sensitive style of Ross Ryan. We took a couple of them and gave them the bloody Kestrel Hawk treatment. For me, that generally meant sitting inert on my drum stool, or perhaps adding a sensitively played pulse on the ride cymbal. Hardly much chop when you imagine yourself to be John Bonham and want to be flailing all over your kit like a drunk collapsing into a line of rubbish bins. With the random covers, the Greg folk megasagas, and some unintentionally garage punk songs made up by the rest of us, we had about an hour's worth of this stuff, which we played over and over and over in the garage. Occasionally, we actually had fun. Here's a song we never played to an audience, but probably should have. It's House of the Rising Sun, but our singer Peter, not the Peter that appears later, a different Peter, is just singing a bunch of swear words that he learnt from his Polish classmate Stanley. That's about as interesting as Kestrel Hawk got. And every Saturday we slaved away in that garage for hours, unknown yet probably reviled by the nearby residents of St John's Avenue. It might have gone on like this for years if not for the fact that Peter went to Springy High and entered us in the annual Springvale High School Fate Talent Contest. A real performance in front of real people. We were allowed two songs. We finished with one of Greg's D&M anthems called When We Come. But to start with, we decided to play it really safe and attempt something so easy that no shithead could fuck it up. And in the mid-70s, if you wanted simple songs by simple people for simple people, it could only mean one band. Status quo. So the first song I ever played live to an audience Surely in the grand scheme of things, one of the most significant milestones in my life was one of Status Quo's completely anonymous, interchangeable boogie shuffles. Paper Plane. Our version didn't sound like that. Riding on a long blue paper plane Getting seasick sorry once again Landing script is getting nearer Hope the fathers makes it clearer Then I realise my paper plane wasn't really up there with me. People often ask me about being nervous before a show. I'll never forget the feeling as I sat at my cheap shithouse red Kenora drum kit. The curtain opened, 
A hall packed with people made this amazing, thrilling din, which then subsided into a silence so cavernous and cataclysmic as anything I've ever experienced, and it was my job to break the awful void by tapping the cowbell four times. Not too slow, not too fast, to introduce the world to the sludge that was Kestrel Hawk's version of Paper Plane. All clichés apply at this point. The crowd loomed like a blood-hungry Roman Colosseum. My arm felt heavier than the rest of my body. The silence seemed to stretch several lifetimes, and the gap between my arm and the cowbell seemed to be widening. And then I hit the fucker, and we were off. Now at this juncture, I need to point out a few things by way of context. The Springy High School fake concert bill consisted of magic acts, calisthenics, bad dance routines, jugglers, and one loud rock band, Kestrel Hawk. It's fair to say then that the contrast worked in our favour. Also, Peter was a bit of a school heartthrob with his long hair and mutton chop sideies. We came on lateish, so the crowd had had a gutful of jugglers, and I'm pretty sure I heard screams of anticipation from 13-year-old girls on the other side of that curtain as we were setting up. So, we did our thing. It was of spectacularly modest quality, but we were absolutely loved. The highlight of the evening, the kings of Springy High. There were a few hundred people in that hall, and the noise after each of our two songs sounded to my fantasist's ears like we were Led Zeppelin at Earl's Court. So began my rock and roll dream. I was in a band. All we had to do was get up and play. The audience would come, and verily, they would love us. And as if to prove that we had the world on an ice cream stick, days afterwards we found out that we'd scored ourselves a full gig. It hardly requires mentioning that I hovered along on my own little cloud, untouchable, destined for greatness forevermore. Well, for four weeks to be precise. The full gig, the one that I could barely get to sleep each night anticipating, was at the Noble Park Youth Club, where my rock and roll dream ended. It was the Saturday night dance, and it started badly. We were sharing the bill with the Disco Duck mobile disco, and when we arrived in the afternoon to set up, we were told the Disco Duck would set up on the stage and we would have to set up on the floor in front of it. The idea that a DJ, a mobile DJ, could be more of a star attraction than a rock band was to our ears a worse crime than pedophilia. This was 1976, and I had a sticker on my drum kit, my newly bought orange pearl drum kit financed by a loan from my older sister Moira, who, as we'll see, played a major part in kick-starting my musical career. My parents didn't want me to play in a band because they thought I would immediately become a drug addict. Anyway, this sticker on my drum kit said, Keep music live. In other words, death to the mobile disco. In hindsight, I think Disco Duck had every right to command centre stage. However, somehow we won the battle and pitched our tent on stage. But already it felt like things weren't running to script. We got into our hippie cheesecloth tops, flicked back our luxurious manes of hair, and waited for the rapturous crowd to arrive. And waited, and waited. Hours past our supposed playing time, the hall was still empty. And then, just as we are about to go home, 
five kids slouched in. We started our set already feeling pointlessness raining down upon us. The five kids wandered right down to the back wall, where in the poorly lit gloom they pashed each other on a couple of park benches while Kestrel Hawk's dissonant cacophony bounced around the concrete walls like 15 bands playing simultaneously, all of them bad. When the five kids went home, so did we. I remember sitting in the kitchen at 20 View Road, Springvale, completely exhausted, eating a bowl of wheat because that's what you do when you're a depressed teenager, contemplating the solar system distance between my fevered expectations and what actually transpired that night. And I began to suspect the grim reality of life as a performer. The springy high fate was the exception. The Noble Park Youth Club was the rule. The comedown of that gig has stayed with me forever. But it got even worse. The guy who owned the PA made a tape and the following week invited us around to play it to us and give us a critique of our performance. I can't remember much about the critique. I don't think he said, quit music, but I wouldn't have blamed him. What we heard was so frighteningly bad, I'm surprised we didn't arrive at that conclusion ourselves. The guitar sounded like surface noise on a vinyl record. The bass was out of tune. In the midst of the onstage barrage, Peter clearly couldn't hear himself and was unwittingly singing the devil's harmony. At the start of ACDC's TNT, Greg rather hilariously tried to exhort the five pashing kids up the back, who we couldn't really see in the darkness, to join in with the song's trademark oys. Except we did such a shit job ourselves that Greg and I were oying out of time with each other. If those kids had given the slightest fuck about us, and they didn't, they would have been mightily confused trying to figure out which set of oys to join in with, Greg's or mine. And to top that off, our PA owner, who was mixing our sound, a generous description if I ever heard one, was doing something very unusual at the end of every song. True to the approach of most bands in the 70s, we did interminable big endings at the end of every song, It's a hilarious rock cliché whereby instead of writing a proper conclusion to a song, you just arrive at an agreed point and start sort of flailing about on your instruments for a few seconds, eventually ending the audience's boredom and misery by hitting one note, ideally punctuated by a leap from your singer. I went to see ACDC in the 90s and they did big endings at the end of literally every song. In fact... They even tacked on big endings to the end of songs that already had an ending. It was like Angus needed to practice his guitar scales or something. On and on, they fucking noodled. It was funny about eight times, then it got really annoying. And this was from a band who could really play their instruments. Imagine a big ending a la Kestrel Hawk. It wasn't pretty. But on our mixer's tape, we noticed something odd. Every time we went into a big ending he started turning the volume of the whole band up and down furiously. Here's an excerpt. When we quizzed him about this strange technique, he said it made the ending sound better. Well, he was half right there. He should have just turned the volume down once. Let's apply his mixing technique to ACDC. Radical stuff. 
I wonder how many bands he went on to mix in this revolutionary style before someone in the audience said, can you please stop doing that? Of course, Kestrelhawk's rudimentary skill level and tuning aside, getting a live band to sound better than shithouse is quite a skill, and I take my hat off to the sound engineer who masters this technique, given their generally appalling working conditions. Imagine a job where you have to work by torchlight and can't communicate with anyone due to a constant backdrop of deafening noise. Add punters spilling their beer onto your workspace, a bad back from lifting speaker cabinets and a liberal dose of tinnitus, and the band hasn't even started playing yet. Imagine commissioning an OHS report on that from one of those ergonomic experts they occasionally wheel into my workplace – Girls who look about 15, fresh from a school holidays job at Baker's Delight, who tell you your computer mouse is in the wrong place. We should all pay a moment's respect to the live sound engineer, a few of whom have contributed to some of my most life-changing experiences. Can you remember the first live band you saw? I remember mine. Uh Uh-oh, look out. Here we go. We're going to start this happy vibes right from the root. I'm pretty certain the first time I realised just how loud a live band could get happened when I was maybe 11 or 12 and my family, being the good Catholics that we were, went to see the stage production of Jesus Christ Superstar. Our seats were right up the top and we were a fraction late. So we opened the door up the back just as the overture started and wham! I remember the sound hitting me like a wall. Impressive stuff to a kid already hooked on the dream. So this is what rock music sounds like. And from there, my first experience of an actual rock band playing a gig was as ultra-hip as you could get. My first band was Mackenzie Theory. Now there's a name that would grace any math rock band. Mackenzie Theory was Australia's coolest prog jazz rock band, led by the furious Robert Fripp-like guitar pyrotechnics of leader Rob Mackenzie, with wild-eyed, flailing-haired violinist Cleese Pierce dashing about beside him. It was pretty overwhelming for the 12-year-old me. Where did I see Mackenzie Theory? At some highbrow concert hall? Nope. It was in Springy, at the Calester Girls Catholic School Senior Social. Socials were a rather different thing back then. That was the name you used for the school dance, a formal in today's language. The Calester College Senior Girls Social. But hang on, what was the 12-year-old me doing there? It was thanks to my sister Moira. I'm not sure exactly how this arrangement worked. Maybe I was a last-minute substitute date, or maybe it was some kind of weird chaperone-in-reverse arrangement set up by my parents. But it worked pretty well for both of us. We walked in, I went straight up to the stage and stood there all night, mouth agape, watching the band, leaving Moira to have fun with her mates. 
And if it sounds incongruous that a major league Australian art rock band was playing a school dance in Springvale, well, it kind of was. But for a short time back then, Calester College had the most amazing school socials in town. At another one, they had a band who had just released their first single. The song was called Living in the 70s and the band was Skyhooks, on the absolute verge of becoming Australia's biggest band. At this particular social, one of the band's spat-coloured dye on the dress of a girl dancing up the front. The parents were outraged, there was talk of a lawsuit and it even made the papers. There was a lot of controversy surrounding Skyhooks for their outrageous stage appearance, distracting many people from their spiky, intelligent pop songs with cynical lyrics name-checking local places. Remind you of anyone? Anyway, at another Calester School social, they had a band who had an even bigger influence on me. Mike Rudd and his Spectrum slash Indelible Mertzeps. Sadly, I wasn't there, but a couple of years later, Moira took me to see them, now known as Ariel, in concert at Monash University's stately, highbrow Robert Blackwood Hall. That hall remains on the list as one of the great unachieved goals of my music career. I'd love to play a proper show there, unlikely as that possibility seems today. Mind you, I have already performed on that august stage. It was my first ever music performance, to be exact, in the school music concert for Merida College. It was a night of infamy for me. My seminal role in the orchestra was clapsticks. Yes, Damien gets the glamorous gigs, And the key to playing clapsticks is you can't grip them too tight, otherwise they don't resonate properly. There's a bit of technical muso-speak for you. You can tell what's going to happen, I'm sure. And yes, as my moment in the piece arrived, my shaking hands dropped the clapsticks and they clattered noisily across the floor, resonating beautifully, as it turns out. By 1974, Robert Blackwood Hall had assumed much better associations for me, It was a fantastic way for me to see a rock band. Comfy seating, a perfect view, excellent acoustics. And that year we saw Mike Rudd with what has subsequently been called the classic aerial lineup: Harvey James, John Lee and of course Bill Putt. About to venture over to Abbey Road Studios in London to record their rock opera, The Jellabad Mutant. That gig remains in my all-time top five. They were a fantastic band and Mike Rudd opened up the possibility to me that there were other ways to be a compelling frontman apart from your hairy-chested, salami-down-the-trouser-leg rock god Robert Plant type, which obviously I was never going to be. Mike Rudd was witty, intelligent, but not averse to the occasional bit of puerile profanity, and all delivered with an air of polite, slightly bemused detachment. A blueprint for the later me. The bits I love. And here's Mike Rudd from the Jellabad Mutant doing his own inimitable version of setting the scene. The sky's been full of clouds and the fields full of turds. Ariel never recorded the Jellabad Mutant at Abbey Road. Their record company nixed the idea at the last minute and the band ended up rehashing old material. That lineup didn't survive long, and the Jellabad Mutant was forgotten until about 30 years later, 
when Mike Rudd released the original demos they'd made in Australia. For a bunch of demos, the songs sound pretty great, and it remains one of my most treasured albums, mainly because it's a memento of that special night at Robert Blackwood Hall pointing to somewhere in my future. I wasn't quite there yet, of course. Plenty of stumbles to come. More about that next time. Listening to only the shit you love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music, go to campsite.bio forward slash Damien Cow DC. See you next time. <laughs>